This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. You are listening to the Media Week. My name's Dan Barrett, Deputy Editor at Media Week Australia. We're here to talk about the week's events in media. James Manning, you're our editor. How are you doing, sir? Uh, Very well, thank you, Dan. Another busy week. Uh, Another busy week indeed. And keeping things busy, Crudy Joshi, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing just fine. Now, there are so many things to get through, but the big news story that's really been driving so much attention, and definitely in this office, uh, the 60 Minutes story. Uh, James, this is a massive story. Yeah, I think in every office. I mean, I still can't believe it's actually happened. Tara (laughs) Brown in handcuffs before a judge. A photo of her silhouette behind the security door of a of uh, jail and the what's well, not a, strictly a jail is still in a holding um, sort of a remand centre or detention thing bef- before any uh, let's hope they're not convicted but before you have to go and serve something um, and and then the whole the whole team you know her crew as well. Mm. I mean, the thing that's really sort of caught my attention with the story, I mean, first of all, it seems very interesting that an Australian network has kind of allowed itself to be in this position. But the thing that's kind of really drawn my attention was just the level of public interest and the opinion that a lot of people took. It just seemed immediately, particularly from a lot of media people on Twitter, people just saying that, oh, let's not confuse this with a situation like Peter Grester, where you've got a journalist of whom is, you know, being caught, you know, arrested for just doing journalism. This is something where they have been caught in an illegal act. And I think lots of people have strong feelings, um, very negatively, I think, against the 60 Minutes crew. You feel for them. I mean, it's horrendous. But at the same time, it's... I don't know, it's complicated. Also, when the story started out, I don't think many people gave it weight because as much as Peter Grester's story got, especially, like, they didn't just realise, you know, how big of a deal it is until, like, I think the next day when they realised the amount of, like, what they could be charged with and how long they could be spending time in that Lebanon jail. Yeah, the actual gravity of the situation. Now, James, you're talking to people in the higher corridors of power. Um, what's the general consensus from the people you chat to? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, the uh, comparisons with Gresta are interesting, aren't they? Because mm. 60 Minutes really seem, I mean, we still don't know all the facts. So, I mean, it's it's very smart to be, you know, know it all in hindsight. But mm. uh, And there's still a lot of detail to come out. But 60 Minutes appear to have been inserting themselves into the story. Whereas, you know, people like Peter Gresta, when they... You know, in, in quote marks, transgressed in Egypt. They were just reporting on things, I guess. They were accused of, uh, I think, citing stuff and taking sides or something, but it, that clearly didn't happen. But in this case, 60 Minutes looks to be on one side of that story, doesn't it? Um, hence, they've run, run foul of the local authorities. One thing is interesting is too, I'm sure Tara Brown and her producer Stephen Rice and their, their sounder and their camera guy would have been probably reporting on Aussie tourists in the past in different countries running foul of the local laws and finding themselves behind bars, you know. And the irony is that here they are in that exact same situation. There was an interesting story in The Australian this morning, I think it was, where they raised two points that I thought were kind of interesting. Uh, The first of all was talking about the payment that was supposedly made to the uh, kidnappers or alleged kidnappers. And they were saying that there was a $120,000 payment and they were trying to work out how that payment gets made. So as far as the Australians asserting here, they were saying there's usually about a $100,000 cap uh, that's usually sort of at the level where it's not upper management that are involved in it. And that's usually signed off by the CFO. But obviously, nine are in an interesting position right now. They don't have that CFO in place yet, or they didn't at the time. And so that's how that's kind of slipped through a little bit. 
Yeah, so. I think the previous CFO is perhaps still in the role there. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I mean, I'm... it seems like there's a bit of a hole as far as this Australian article asserts. The other thing that caught my attention was they just mentioned Peter Costello. And Peter Costello, obviously former treasurer, uh, well-connected person. It's obviously still the Liberal um, you know, party in power at the moment. So it does mention that Peter Costello made an intervention last night by phoning the Foreign, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. And I guess that's one of the real benefits of having Peter Costello there as your chairman, that you do have someone to lean on like that. Mm, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's still a fair bit to play out. I get a feeling that there, any deal between Sally Faulkner and her estranged husband could have a significant bearing on this whole thing, mm. even though the authorities there are saying things like, you know, look, the charges you know, will still proceed with whatever happens, but I think that's, um, there's still a bit there to go. Perhaps this one was a bit of a rush, you know. They, they didn't get the time to really consider all the options, whether they should be involved or not. The opportunity presented itself. Somebody made a bit of a quick decision. Yeah, we should pile in and, and get over and try and record what happened. Mm. I don't, mean, these stories move quickly. But don't they still go through their legal department? Well, perhaps in this case, well, clearly <laughs> not. Obviously, there's some issues but, there. But then, again, we, we just don't know. So, but, yeah. but, but on the face of it, it just looks like there's... The, the uh, chain of command there has been some some um, issues. Well, yeah. heart goes out to everyone who's involved, obviously. Let's move on. There was the interesting appointment during the week. Uh, Deanne Weir is returning back to the world of pay TV. Uh, James, so she's going to be serving there as the executive director of Channel Aggregation and Wholesale. Sexy job title, but what does it entail? It's really managing the partnerships with those, those big brands that you see on the Foxtel platforms, whether it be, you know... NBC Universal, their swag of channels, uh, Discovery, uh, Viacom, BBC, people like that who are, are really crucial to that Foxtel offering. And these days, you know, have to decide where, well, gee, okay, we used to have all our content just with Foxtel, but these days they can go direct to consumers via apps. They can have uh, start up their own SVOD service, as we saw NBCU do in this market with AU. And Disney are mooted to be doing the same thing soon Correct. as well. Correct, yep, yep. Or you can start putting it out on, on people like give it to Fetch as well, you know. So there's, there's lots of different options. And Foxtel just need that uh, constant flow of good content. The more they can get exclusive, even the better. So that's it's a, it's a massive responsibility for DM Weir. Yeah, now what I was thinking about the Foxtel platform, and this comes into conversations that we were having late last year when you saw the move by Scripps into the Australian market. Now, when I was talking to the guy from Scripps, he was saying that the big issue that they've really had, um, Derek Chang being the gentleman, uh, the big issue they had getting into the Australian market were they were talking to Foxtel and Foxtel weren't really that interested in carrying the channels at the time. But I do wonder that with such a uh, strong push towards digital now with Foxtel, could we see a position where they really do open up their platforms, maybe not necessarily the TV by cable delivery, but when they do launch these new digital platforms, that you see people like Scripps of whom you want to enter the Australian market? Here's your opportunity. They just sort of, you know, let it fly. Uh, yeah, I think they will. And there's also some chat that the new CEO there, Peter Tonner, will... Um will let people start to build their own menu of channels you want you know there'll be a you'll be able to pick and choose a little bit more than you can now yeah again it's an area fraught with fraught with difficulty because it's you know it really the whole foxtel business model to date is that sort of if you like a higher priced uh, package mm. uh, where you get everything and when you do bring in these competing channels, it really dilutes their own owned and operated channels. So the lifestyle channels, for example, would be you know severely hit. I think if they had competitors like Scripps coming through with a much lower you know range of channels available. Yeah, although I think the key to lifestyle is that that uh, 
the commission content they make because mm. you see that in things like Arena too where they do with Real Housewives. But all those those lifestyle shows are huge for um, for lifestyle channels and they're the clearly the most popular programs every week outside of sport. Yeah, I think the difficulty is exposing people to new programs. So while it's good and well to say, oh, you like lifestyle channels, here's your lifestyle channels, and it's very easy for a lifestyle viewer then to come across the local commission program, when they're choosing the packages to begin with and you don't really know what these programs are, I think that's the part of sell on it. But it'll yeah. be interesting to see how they do approach it going forward. For sure. And just on that, uh, Peter Tonner gave an interview to The Australian earlier this week. It seems like I only read The Australian. I do read <laughs> other publications, I swear. Uh, but he was talking Not to that the there's anything wrong with no, this. No, The Australian's fine. <laughs> Um, he was talking about the strategy moving forward, and he did say they're still committed to the same digital strategy that they were looking at before Peter Tonner took over. And they actually did reference the Sky TV service, TV Now. And while we, I think we presume that's the model they'd be looking for, this is the first time we've actually really seen TV Now referenced directly. And I took a look at the TV Now product, which, James, you have you looked at it much? No, I haven't, no. Um, so the way it looks, and I hadn't looked at it until this week, really, uh, but basically what it is, it's three packages you can get. So it's kind of very similar to Foxtel Play. So you've got Foxtel, oh, sorry, Now TV Entertainment, Now TV Movies, and Now TV Sports. And so you choose whichever package you want. I think all of them are priced at £24.99, um, but for three months. Because that seems to be the way they try to sell. They try to get you into uh, committed packages. So they try to get you for one month or you can go for but three months. But you pay months. that fee every month. You don't you pay, pay it for three months. So there's a monthly fee yep. or they can give you a discount fee. So you can like chop off, I think, about like you know 20% or something if you go for three months. Or you're saving more money if you go six months or a year. So that's kind of how they get no you. No free TV yet, as we suggested last week. Um, our, <laughs> these these uh, insightful people in Hong Kong are offering. Uh, not just yet, but, you know, we'll see. They are giving away a Roku box as part of it, so similar to our Telstra TV here. And I was looking through the channel packages, and it's a lot of, uh, like, international brands, so, you know, like Comedy Central and that kind of thing coming through. So things of which I think would be fairly familiar here. Less reliance, I think, on some of the Sky-specific channels. So it does have Sky Atlantic in one of them and one other Sky channel, but by and large it is... It's not a lot different to what Foxtel really doing, is it? It's not that different to normal Foxtel and not that different to Foxtel Play. Hmm. And I think that's where they're going to get into a little bit of trouble with it, where I think that your average cord cutter who's looking at a package like this, they'll look at movies, they'll look at TV and say, well, you know, I can do this without contracts delivered online. But when you look at it and start looking about the amount of money you're paying for it, so it was £24.99 for three months. So if you get that for just entertainment, but you also want movies on top, it starts really getting up there price-wise. And I think very quickly people will cotton on to the fact that they're spending just as much on this as they would be Foxtel. And mm. considering a lot of Foxtel is contract-free now as well, like it's not that much of a product differentiation. So it'd be interesting to see what they do here to combat that. Yeah, and we shouldn't forget that Foxtel has been very successful lately. Mm. Um, and they're really just trying to position themselves for the future because they've still got a good little profitable business. But the way yeah. the sort of market is splintering and um, being disrupted, Dan, mm. that does threaten that um, their cash flows. Oh, it does. And they're clearly future-proofing, and it'll be exciting to see how they do it because not only do they have to adapt to digital distribution, but also the pricing that goes along with that, which is kind of counter to the traditional cable model. So that's obviously there's two big challenges for them. Sure. But yeah, um, very interesting moving forward. Uh, what else have we got here? Um, Annette Sharp. She wrote an obituary for the TV Week Loki Awards this week. Now, James, you had your tongue very firmly in cheek when you wanted to talk about this. Uh, what was it she was asserting exactly? 
Well, you were supposed to ask me, is it too soon, Dan? Is oh, it too soon for is the, it, is for it too the... soon? <laughs> James, really too soon? Yeah, um, well, yeah, I think it probably is. I think the TV Week Logie Awards, we talked a fair bit about it last week. The uh, They will still have an impact this year. People still want to win those awards. People in the industry uh, who were nominated, I think it's... People like winning awards. People like getting uh, acknowledged for their work whether it be, you know, from a popular vote or from an industry vote. I'm sure there's been a little bit of a brouhaha, some controversy around some of the, the nominees, particularly as we discussed last week, in that gold Logie uh, category. But I think, yeah, look, I think the Logie Awards will soldier on. They might adapt. They might take some of this criticism on board this year. We might see changes. I don't. They certainly won't admit to anything before the awards, but I think... Post awards, when they look at the analysis of how it all went this year, as they do every year, they'll throw up suggestions how maybe they could a change adapt to a, a, the marketplace. Yeah, I do wonder with the Logies, and I hope I didn't talk about this last week, but one of the things I wonder is they've obviously got two streams of awards. So you've got the most outstanding and you've got the most popular. I don't really know why they persist with that. Like, I think for the credibility of the awards, and I think that's going to be important moving forward, it should be all outstanding except for the Gold Logie. Like, make that the popular one and really just harness that as a focal point for a lot of the audience enthusiasm behind it. And also someone new coming in, I think it kind of um, confuses them as to what means what. And, Mm. like, I know one's, you know, industry-voted and the other one's voted on how popular it is, but still, it's kind of confusing names, especially because they don't have that much of a difference but, between but them. But what are you suggesting? They have less public voting or more, more public voting? I think less public voting, but you just concentrate the public voting on saying, look, this is your opportunity to so vote. So get rid of the readers, get them out. Well, no, no, because I don't think you are getting rid of the well, readers. I think it's really well, just... Well, you are if you have less you are, public voting. I, you're still giving them an outlet for it. I just well, think for that, one, for one, for the gold logo. But I think that when you're presented with like 10 or 15 categories you don't really care about... Or maybe the opportunity is here to say you vote for the gold logie and the silver logie and really like bring that back. Well, I think that would go against <laughs> what the TV Week brand's really offering them, which is to engage the readers. And obviously the hmm, logie is a very successful proposition. It used to be all public voting, I think. Yeah. They didn't have any industry stuff. But I don't think they're being disengaged. You're just like focusing the actual engagement. Well, 15 or 17, the number may be a bit too much. So maybe cut down the numbers, but to just give him two from 15 is a bit much. Here's a counterexample. I really like burgers. I like hamburgers. The one thing I've noticed with the the burger renaissance (laughs) that's taking place, you find that most of the hipster burger places that are galvanizing a lot of public attention these days cut down their choices from 30 offers on the menu down to just two or three. And they're saying you can have your cheeseburger, you can have your you know veggie burger, you can have your other thing. Those are all you get. And those places always have massive queues and people are always very keen because the product that you're receiving is generally a little bit more tailored and obvious and it's just like this clear product that you're engaging in. And I think that's what the TV Week needs. Less choice, more like communist Russia is what I'm looking no, for, James. You've lost me completely. Look, I'll give you an analogy. I'll give you a burger analogy, okay, right? Come on, These hipster burger bars yeah. aren't about to put McDonald's out of business, all right? So the general <laughs> public still like to... Their burgers, all right, and also you can have your hipsters who go and have your your upmarket burgers, which is voting for all those arty drama shows that nobody watches. Okay, yep, that's all well and good, but also give the people a big say too. Uh, have you been paying attention to the <laughs> profits of McDonald's lately? They're not doing so well, James. Well, but they're not about to go out of business. Well, right? and can well, I also say that <laughs> the hipster burger places also have um, space to introduce new burgers, take away old burgers, etc. So they can constantly evolve. 
But with TV Week Logies, if they introduce and take away a new category every year, that's confusing. Or every couple of years, Not let's every year. Say. You get rid of them all now. Just wipe it clean. That's what we need. I love the big vision you've got, but I can't agree. You're getting rid of the yeah, me too. I think you're getting rid um, rid of the readers altogether, and which is you know against what TV Week wants. I don't think you are getting rid of the readers. Like you're still engaging them in the gold logo. With two awards, they feel like they have no control over it, whereas they feel like they they have a sense of ownership. Party shows cropping up in there. No one cares about stuff that doesn't rate for it. They're going to go. What is this stuff? No one cares about the other awards, though. People only care about the gold logo. Well, no, I think they do care about the other awards. Well, I'm going to get my clipboard and go and talk to people on the streets. (laughs) Do some vox pops down. Well, we can press the pause button. We'll start up again in a couple of hours (laughs) when you've done some vox pops. Oh, actually, we'll start tomorrow. I'm not willing to hang behind that much <laughs> it's only going to take seven hours Kurtz. yeah let's move on uh one of the really interesting news stories that we've got in the media week magazine this week is talking about david haslington's uh zumu which is a international kids network and channel provider yeah it took m- yeah. me a little while to get my head around it david haslington um a quite a long time tv TV executive. I think he worked at uh, Fox International Channels. I think he worked at uh, National Geographic for a little while too. He was the chairman of uh, Nine Entertainment Company until reasonably recently. He started this. He saw the opportunity for a, a kids brand associated with animals. He didn't. He thought that this was a niche that they could fill. Like so, they did. They've called it Zoomu. So it operates on several levels. It's a linear channel in some markets. I think they've got a great carriage deal across South America with DirecTV. They're also on DirecTV, I think, Hispanic, which is a really big market in the USA. Absolutely massive and just growing. Absolutely. Uh, They're adding some carriage deals in some parts of Asia. Now, it also provides programming blocks to other people. The most one people here would know about is 7-2, I think, show a two-hour block every morning at 7 a.m. of Zumu content. And you can also, uh, it engages audiences with via their app, so you can get some on-demand stuff there as well. And it's also on-demand in some other territories as part of an on-demand offer there. So they really fill a, fill a, different, uh, a few different sort of content holes. So am I right in thinking that all their programmings will be based around animals? Very good. Yay. Um, And also, am I right in thinking that they wouldn't shy away from launching a linear channel in Australia? I think that's probably the ultimate aim, but they're they're not that far yet. I think maybe they think the demand or the size of the market's not quite big enough. They're happy with their existing deal with Seven, mm. but they've got, you know, they, they think they, yeah, they would like to get there eventually. So if, if, if that's their ultimate goal, I'm just thinking like we've been uh, talking about, you know, if there is any place for linear channels and Foxtel also recently announced that they won't be looking to do, uh, launch any more new linear channels. Will they still have a place in a, say about 10 years or so? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. But they cover all bases, you know. They can just provide content to other people. They can provide it themselves. And one of the geniuses of this is the channel's almost self-sufficient within David Haslington's group of companies. He's got five major media brands. I think three of them are production houses. They make a lot of the content he screens. And the other thing we should note too, they did launch in China, massively successful there. They're doing some really good business. Um, they've launched some series, I think, on CCTV over there, which is the state-owned big broadcaster, and it's doing really incredible numbers. And that's a big market for animation as well. Love their animation stuff. Yeah, well, I think a big market for everything. I think days. a lot of this is, yeah. is puppet stuff. I don't know if they do much animation. I think there's puppets, there's a bit of live action. I'm not sure how much animation they're getting into. Right. Hmm. Yeah. 
Interesting. Indeed. Uh, so, yeah, definitely one to watch. And uh, as we were talking about with Foxtel, the idea of launching new channels like that's definitely the potential there for Zoomu to sure. get involved. And also, you know, other platforms like Apple TV and whatnot. Uh, just briefly, just talking about Seven Flicks. Uh, we did an interview with them when they were launching the channel. And one of the things that Brooke Hall, who's the head programmer for Seven Flicks, had said was, and I'll read the quote directly, there'll be a movie at 8.30 every night on Seven Flicks. And I was kind of enthused by that because it was definitely a bold statement and movies are something missing from the free-to-air market. But clearly they've been looking at their ratings for it and haven't done so well because if you look at the schedule these days, you're finding on, uh, what is it, Monday nights, they've now got Criminal Minds. Sorry, Thursday nights, Criminal Minds at 8.30, 9.30 and 10.30. And on Mondays, they've got Grey's Anatomy at 8.30. So that's two nights that I've lost now with that 8.30 time slot that I promised would always feature a movie. Well, there's a shocker. I know, TV two networks nights of the week, they've, they've changed their programming strategy. Well, I mean, the entire base of the channel was that every night at 8.30, there'd be a movie. Were and they popular movies or? Well, like just they, I they guess the, unpopular films. the main thing is the name, yeah. iFlix. You, you might, seven Flicks. Uh, seven Flicks, you might think it's a, a movie channel. Yeah. But it's clearly not. I mean, clearly. I mean, it's yeah becoming yeah. less of a movie channel with every week. Yeah, seems. but I guess they're just yeah. going to go with where, where the eyeballs are. Well, and if that means screening no movies, well, yeah. they're not going to mind. They'll, they'll screen no movies. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the thing that just caught me was that the moves happened so quickly in the sort of cycle for it. But yeah, I'd just be interested to see how that channel develops. And if they'll keep that Seven Flicks branding as well. So obviously Flicks is a very sexy title to have these days. But as James just said, like sure. it does connote movies a little bit more than others. Um, so, you know, certainly keep an but eye there. But Netflix, it doesn't hold them back, does it? With, I, um, I'm guessing... <laughs> I think the, Netflix are doing okay. It's the, the number one in the market. Yeah, the movie yeah. the movie offer on Netflix is the most disappointing thing about the whole thing. I mean, there's, mm. I just, it's really pretty poor yeah. if, in terms of uh, new releases and, and contemporary cinema. It's pretty no, exactly. good for some classics and that. But, I mean, you jump on Netflix, really, for the TV selection, not necessarily the movies. Yeah, correct. So, yep. Yeah, uh, and definitely the originals is where they're ramping up. Croots, uh, Gratia, they are relaunching in the Australian market as an online publication. Yeah, they are. And so they're going to be launching towards the end of this month. And they're launching with a really big partnership with um, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week, which is starting on May 7th. Now, that's a big deal um, in, in the local Australian fashion market. And so, you know, it gives them the ability to reconnect with the local landscape straight away. I don't know whether it's a good idea or not because I did put forward the question to the general manager, Man Schwartz, um, and he said he didn't understand why the brand was closed down in the first place. So it's an interesting take. It will be interesting to see what their, um, how they go. And also they're not really adopting for a, what do you call a traditional editorial structure where each of their categories will have its own editor. So I'm interested to see in how successfully that works. Yeah, I think it will be interesting, won't it? The, they, they say they're not going to be running much material from other Grazia publications around the world, although at the same time they say they'll be covering a lot of the big uh, fashion uh, events, the fashion shows all around the world. But I guess that'll be using Grazia coverage of those other fashion shows. Would that be right? Yeah, so they'll be using the Grazia coverage of the fashion shows. So all the content will be, you know, published on their website, Express from wherever the show's happening. Um, but they'll also be bringing a lot of local content about 
those fashions. So obviously, you know, what's, um, for example, if there's a winter fashion show happening halfway across the world, they're obviously going to pick apart the fashion and say, you know, what can be worn here in Australia in summer and then what can be taken across to winter. So um, that's an interesting strategy. Also, one thing that Man mentioned that they're going to be um, investing in is motion photography. So if you go uh, go to grazia.com.au right now, it has no content, but there is um, a face of this model, which I think I've seen in Australia's Next Top Model. But um, yes, yeah, so it's a face of this mo- model and her hair is just, you know, floating in the air, which I thought was pretty impressive for a landing page. But so I'm really excited to see what their motion actual... Motion photography. Yeah, so it's just... So is that just a GIF or what's going on there? Kind of like a GIF, yeah. 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 Um, I'm going to want a bit more than that, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not exactly driving me to the side, but I'm not sure I'm the target market No, but I'm really excited to see the interface of it once it does launch. Yeah, did they say much in terms of video ambitions? That's obviously the big drive for a lot of digital publications. Yeah, so they're going to be um, investing heavily in video. And um, like like I said, that's going to be tested as soon as they really open their shutters on towards the end of this month because the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week kicks off on May 7th and so they're going to be providing an extensive video coverage as well as written coverage in multilingual. Um, so it's going to be available in China and Australia. So they'll be yeah, well, something. We'll, we'll probably jump on and review the site uh, in a bit of detail when they launch. We might get someone in perhaps to tell us a little bit about it too. Yeah. You think, Rudy? Good idea? Good idea. I'll okay. review the frocks. <laughs> Pacific magazines are launching allrecipes.com.au so that's the Australian um, version of the international brand uh, Crudy seems like they're taking on taste.com.au to me um, I don't know I was, I was a bit more impressed with taste.com.au than looking at the allrecipes.com.au all, all website um, I don't know if it's a bit too late because you know taste.com.au is already kind of entrenched its, its, itself in the consumer market so it'd be interesting to see how they go it's never too late uh, a couple of very quick ones uh, Jonathan Lopaglia, brother of Anthony, has been hired as the host of Australian Survivor. James, did you see this one coming? Yeah, look, it's Chen's form all over again. They've hired a, <laughs> an, a nine drama star to host I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Now they've got a, uh, another drama star to um, host um, I'm, um, Survivor. Yeah. So it's obviously worked for them. Julia Morris worked for them as the co-host of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Now Jonathan Lopalia. So, yeah, why not? Worked first time. Let's give it again. And the, the other person keeps their job at the other network, helps build their profile, instant, yeah. uh, um, instant int- recognition. Really interesting choice in that um, jobbing actor, been around for years, but he's not necessarily the household name that his brother is. Despite the fact we've seen Jonathan Parker in God knows how many shows over the years, international shows in the US as well as Australian. So he's definitely going to be a well-known face, even if people don't necessarily know him just yet. But I think this is going to change with Australian Survivor. Hard show to cast for because he's like a rugged guy, but also someone of whom isn't so rugged and masculine that he's off-putting. So brings it's a, a struggle. Brings a bit of cred though with him, doesn't mm. it? Really, it's not like oh, yeah. you know, like it's not like any a game show host or somebody. This is a, you know, it's a it's sort of interesting thinking on it. Just looking mm. at the promo shot, it reminded me of the um, host of the Amazing Race. I don't know his name. Oh, well, but, it's probably yeah. more in line with Jeff Probst, who's the US Survivor host. Like he has that same sort of masculinity to him. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Crudy, there was a story this week about News Corp saying they have a much bigger readership than Facebook. What the hell? 
Yeah, I didn't quite. Re- I didn't run. Uh, was yes. qualified much bigger, a little <laughs> bit bigger. They were both pretty much line ball. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where they got the stats from, to be honest, because you well, know, well, they, we do. We do. They got them from the Emma Reid. No, I mean, they got their stats from Emma Reid, yeah. but Facebook. Well, Facebook know that the size of their readership, yeah. don't they? I, I think that's how digital works, Crudy. Yeah. Yeah, but do they do they do they make it public in terms of like geographical? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's, yeah, yeah. Facebook punch out how many people are using the site every day. It's quite a big stat. All their advertisers like to know. They do that globally, but Public in terms listed of companies tend to have to report that sort of thing. Yeah, 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 but globally, do they do it like for particular yeah, yeah, markets as well? Yeah, I think Market so. by market. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed a bit much. Anyway, so they claim that they have a reach of 16 million people for Australians aged over 14. Oh, 16, was it? Yes, yeah, so a News oh, Corp. Such, oh, yeah, okay. What's well, quite a yep. bit higher. You're right. And uh, Facebook. Two million higher. Yeah, it's Facebook 14, is 14.9. Um, but yeah, just that comparison amazed me. And also, uh, News Corp have a lot more has a lot more outlets in terms of attracting audiences, whereas Facebook is just that one URL. Just that little thing called the internet. D- yeah. No, no, no. Just no, no. Just that one URL. Uh, well, that's the that's the. Just, just look at your phone there for a moment. Uh, have you only got one thing there? Don't you have Instagram? Don't you have a few other Facebook products there? Mm. That is true. Yeah, yeah, they do have a... You know. <laughs> and I think it's a good move by News Corp. People have been talking a lot about this today. Uh, it's a great conversation point. Yeah, people yeah. are going, really? Come on. <laughs> that can't be right. I mean, that was so. my first reaction. So now clearly I've been shot down, but still, hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. Okay, guys, usually we wind this out by talking about what's been exciting us this week. Cruzy, you've been excited by, I don't know, maybe one of the most fundamentally groundbreaking bits of media this week, uh, The Jungle Book. Oh, so exciting. Um, so it released in India before the US and Australia. Australia releases on Friday? Oh. No, it's out. It's out? Yes, okay. it's out. Movies yeah. come out on Thursdays here. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, sorry. Just started. <laughs> so it came out this week um, and I think it was released in India before that. Uh, turned out um, it got the second highest Hollywood opening ever behind Fast and Furious 7 and it's also one of those cult favourites in India, the animation series. Um, so I'm really looking forward to revisiting all those characters, Mowgli and Shera Khan. Yeah. It'll be amazing. Very well reviewed. James, you'll be checking out Jungle Book this weekend, no doubt. Yeah, no, I <laughs> might give that a miss. Look, I, I this isn't a, a, something that sort of impressed me, but it's just I'm just coming to grips with this whole 60 Minutes thing and, and that just I can't get that image out of my mind of Tara Brown in handcuffs in a, a Beirut jail. It's just incredible. Uh, and just how this story will play out. And I, I'm a bit of surprised it hasn't made a few more waves internationally, you know, because I, I think it has m- massive repercussions on on how media and, and and how media might try and insert themselves in um, in the in the stories that they cover. I think we're I think the world's waiting to get onto a particular side, so maybe hopefully Tara Brown. Mm. And it'd be interesting to see. I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's just got a lot to play out. It's just you, you can't comment too much on it at the moment because no. there's still so many things we don't know. I mean, it's horrible just thinking about the anxiety that she would be going through through this whole process. It's it's not anywhere where She seems where really well composed and she does, but, you know, at least just, publicly. So mm. I'm sure it does. She might be, you know. I mean, I've read it. I don't know. I don't know where I've read it, but it was a scary description of the jail cells and you know where Tara could possibly end up if she was to serve a twenty-year sentence, and it just sounds horrible. So yeah, let's yeah. hope that doesn't happen. Something that's been exciting me this week has been the presidential podcast. 
Now, something we're doing in the Media Week magazine, and we're putting it up on the site each week, is we are looking at some of the podcasts that are enthusing us and informing us about media and, you know, the media landscape. One of the things that caught me was the Washington Post are really making efforts to further their digital footprint by putting out products like this. So in the lead up to the US election, every week they're looking at a different US president. And I occasionally watch movies and there'll be a president and it's always Lincoln or it's John Adams or someone. But there's all these other presidents that served in between. I've got no idea who any of them are. And it's actually been really fascinating charting the entire history of a nation from beginning to, you know, modern day, just based on the way their leaders like lived and raised their life and the politics involved at the time. It sounds really dry, but the host of it, who's a reporter for the Washington Post, her name's Lillian Cunningham. She actually injects a lot of color along the way because she'll be talking to historians now she'll ask the question if i was to go out on a blind date with this president what would it be like and so that actually sort of <laughs> have like a real life tangible wow. example to what engagement with this historical figure is really fascinating it's called the presidential podcast and i think they're just about to hit lincoln so it's still early days for now, this show. that's a question i would never think about asking about some president <laughs> well that's how lillian gets paid the big bucks there at the oh. washington post <laughs> <laughs> Well, those years yeah. in journalism school. Exactly. There was a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. Okay, uh, guys, this has been the Media Week podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk more things media. In the meantime, we'll drop a few other podcasts along the way with interviews with major industry figures. This week, we do have a great panel discussion with the guys from Presto as they make the announcement they are number two in the marketplace. So that's a very interesting listen for those that are... Very controversial. Some, uh, <laughs> they explode some myths about the uh, streaming or subscription video uh, in Australia, Dan. They do, they do. Anyway, that is a great listen. Anyway, guys, we'll be back next week to talk more media.